This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 29th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In the wake of an assault on the author Salman Rushdie, it's worth remembering that even mainstream Muslims take a relatively hard line on blasphemy and other disrespect to Islam. So what do more liberal Muslims have to say to their fellow Muslims about tolerance and the freedom of expression? Cato's Mustafa Akil, author of Reopening Muslim Minds, comments. Well, there are almost 2 billion Muslims around the world, and they have different opinions about freedom of expression. Uh, most of them will probably tell you that, of course, there should be some freedom of expression. People can express their ideas, but they will say there are certain limits. And, and blasphemy, that is disrespect to, to God, the Prophet, or the Quran, would be a limit. Again, that's, I think, a mainstream view. And uh, I'm a critic of this mainstream view, but I should say that at least this mainstream view doesn't as go far as giving death fatwas on authors like Salman Rushdie as vigilante violence or you know acts of terrorism. That's an extreme position. But still, this mainstream view thinks that people should be taken to courts if they write books or say things that are disrespectful to Islam, which of course uh, routinely happens uh, in, in not all, but many Muslim-majority societies. And there is a more liberal position, that uh, liberal in the classical sense, that I myself espouse, which is, while we Muslims have values, of course, we don't want to see our values being disrespected, but uh, people should, able, should be able to do that. It's not a crime. We also sometimes disrespect you know, other people. You know, Islam has certain statements about polytheism, about this belief. So in a, in a world that is fair to everybody, nobody should be uh, persecuted for their beliefs and opinions. Uh, so that, that view certainly condemns terrorist attacks uh, on so-called blasphemers, real or perceived. And that also uh, goes against the idea of punishing them through legal mechanisms as well. I, I think at least as far as the West is concerned, uh, Iran's identity has been in part defined by its death threats issued against Salman Rushdie, who, of course, recently was attacked uh, in uh, New York. So uh, when, when you try to advance this more liberal view of how uh, Islam should view the freedom of expression, what what do you hang your hat on? Well, I mean, this whole Salman Rushdie affair has a history of 33 years by now. I think the novel was, or 34, and the novel was published in 1988. And uh, the Satanic Verses, the famous novel. And actually, I think it was the first incident in the West which raised question marks about the tension between Islam and freedom of expression. It was published in the UK, and some Muslims demanded that the book should be banned, and the British government did not, and it turned into a controversy. But while many Muslims wanted the book to be banned, which I think was not the right idea in the beginning, not everybody went as far as saying, you know, the, the author Salman Rushdie and the publishers should be killed for it, right? That was the Iranian position, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the founding leader of the Iranian Republic, uh, the, and the leader of the Islamic Revolution, he gave this infamous fatwa and saying that 
good Muslims should kill Salman Rushdie, and 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 there's a price for it, but also God will reward such an action. Of course, after that incident, the word fatwa itself became infamous in the West, which is of course a misunderstanding. Fatwa is a legal opinion, so you can have a liberal fatwa on something as well. But this was a grim fatwa. Uh, why Iran did this? I mean, that's partly political because after the Iranian revolution of uh, 1979, the so-called Islamic Republic of Iran claimed to be the staunchest defender of Islam by outbidding other countries, you know, that uh, act in the name of Islam. And partly because it's, uh, Iran is Shiite, so it is a little bit disadvantageous, you know, in its claim for leadership in the Muslim world. Most Muslims are sh- uh, Sunni. Iran wanted to show how actually heroic and staunch and brave in its in its defense, which also comes out its uh, extreme militancy on Israel as well, compared to most of the Arab countries who are ready to make a peace with Israel, whereas Iran, you know, calls for Israel's destruction. That's a more radical position. Uh, on on this, uh, the fatwa too, you know, uh, Khomeini gave this verdict, and and then Salman Rushdie went to hiding. And over the years and decades, many people thought that, ah, this is maybe passe. I mean, maybe Iranians are not too big on this anymore. It's an old issue. But I think this recent attack on Salman Rushdie in the middle of upstate New York uh, shows that, you know, some of these people do not forget, you know, what they want to do. And uh, so it was a it was like a sober, I think, reminder that uh, some attacks on free speech are always there. You know, they will not go away over time. So when you advance the idea that uh, freedom of expression ought to be respected by Muslims, most especially when it is criticism of some aspect of Islam, what do you say to other Muslims? Well, there are rational arguments and religious arguments that I uh, advance, and not just me, but several academics or scholars with let's say, liberal views on this matter who have written about this issue, not just the Salman Rushdie affair, but the broader issue of blasphemy laws in Islam. They've also said the same things. First of all, there are religious arguments. One is that, uh, first of all, what are the bases of Islam? It's the Quran, the scripture, and the actions of the Prophet Muhammad, right? That the letter is called Sunnah, the example of the Prophet. Actually, there's no basis in the Quran for blasphemy laws. The Quran condemns that, you know, those who disrespect God will be punished by God in the afterlife. But it doesn't say people should be killed on earth, you know, for, for what they say. Uh, like much of what, what what we call Islamic law, the Sharia, actually the word comes from not the Quran, but later interpretations. And there, there are some actions of Prophet Muhammad that was taken as basis for blasphemy laws. Uh, these are stories about certain poets in Mecca and Medina uh, during the time of the Prophet who were executed by first Muslims. These are written, again, not in the Quran, but later biographies of the Prophet, which were written like 150 years after his passing. So even you can doubt their authenticity. But I also make the argument that even if those certain poets were executed for being against Muslims, they were not just mockery. They were not just doing mockery or blasphemy. They were actually inciting war against the Muslims. So that was a different context. Whereas you have stories of people insulting the prophet and he, he, he doing nothing, you know, he just forgives. Uh, it's quite interesting, though, that later Islamic jurists said that the prophet could forgive because it was his personal honor. He could forgive, but we cannot forgive. It, th- that's, again, a very subjective argumentation. You can, quite the contrary, said if he forgave, we can forgive people, too, you know, for disrespecting him. So there are these religious arguments. 
And also there is a rational argument that, well, we live in a modern world. It's different than what 7th century Arabia was, where poets could start wars. Uh, if we want to fit into the modern world, uh, we need freedom of expression as well, right? I mean, there are people who would say, oh, this verse in the Quran is offensive, or this idea in Islamic tradition is offensive, so let's ban it. Instead of that, we need freedom of expression for Muslims and for non-Muslims as well, so we should come to a rational common ground. Uh, and these arguments are made by various scholars, some of them I personally know and, and follow their work, like uh, Mohsen Kadivar in Iran has written about this. There is a new book by two, a few academics challenging blasphemy and apostasy laws in Islam. So the idea is out there. And of course, how that is translated into policy or how Muslim masses understand this, that's a different discussion. But I can say that there are quite a few Muslims around the world who see these attacks on authors like Salman Rushdie and saying that there is no good in this, this only brings shame to our religion and you know we should be more civilized about this. There is certainly that sentiment that has to be nurtured by uh, argumentation. But obviously there's also a very strong sentiment to punish people uh, for blasphemy, which is quite a burning problem in Pakistan, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and, and some other countries and in some hard among some hardline Islamist groups. You and I have discussed in the past uh, charges and convictions for blasphemy against Islam in some predominantly uh, Muslim countries. What what do you think the impact of that is uh, and what do you think it will be going forward? Is there any effort uh, in a lot of these countries to try to roll back some of these some of these laws? Well, I think the. Uh... The counterproductive result of trying to ban blasphemy is to cause more blasphemy, right? Because when you say uh, we are killing people in the name of Islam, if they don't respect Islam and our prophet, we will punish them for this. That only makes people not respect the prophet, but quite the contrary, think that there's not much to respect in this religion. So we Muslims uh, often rightly, most of the time, complain of Islamophobia, you know, bias against Muslims, a, a, a very negative view of Islam. I myself write against that. But I think with actions like blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, or other acts of violence or intolerance in the name of Islam, some Muslims are partly causing Islamophobia. So therefore, uh, it, it's one argument is that, well, if we want people to respect our faith as we would like them to do, we can't do that by controlling the way they speak. We can only do that by controlling our reaction to what they say about our religion. And the more mature we are and uh, and the more uh, tolerant we are, actually there will be more respect to our religion and maybe more interest in our religion as well. And there are strong grounds for that in the Quran. I mean, there are verses which says, you know, when people mock your fate, just do not sit with them, you know, just move away silently from them. And there are verses, there's one verse which says when people are against you, hostile towards you, respect, uh, return with good behavior, and that will, you, you can see that person as a friend to you. So. There is this kind of almost turn the other cheek attitude in the Quran, which was not taken as very important by medieval Islamic jurisprudence, which took play in the context of medieval warfare and conquest. And uh, But I think today we're living in a different world and a new interpretation of Islam, which highlights those more tolerant and magnanimous uh, messages in the Quran uh, as the definitive uh, Muslim attitude on issues like blasphemy or or other matters that relate to human freedom. 
Cato Institute Senior Fellow Mustafa Akiol is the author of Reopening Muslim Minds. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>